Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Well, thanks for um, welcoming me and for um, being here today as I have the opportunity to preach as part of this series. We're only in our second week, a series on giving hope. And today, the title of my sermon is called Saved for What? What are we saved for? And the name of the series will kind of give it away a little bit, but this one I want to explore today. What are we saved for? In particular, what is it that we go to heaven for? What is heaven? So in life, it's important to know where you're going and to have the end goal in mind. Wouldn't you agree? A builder doesn't start work on a new house without a plan for what it's meant to look like, how many people are meant to be in it, whether it's for a hot or a cold environment, and what budget or resources they have to use. They need the end in mind. Just as an entrepreneur who wants to create a successful business needs to understand the market, understand their customers, and have a product that is going to create a return. In all things, big or small, it helps to have the end in mind. Why is this? Why is it so important to have the end in mind? In his famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, author Franklin Covey explains why it's so critical to start with the end in mind, which he calls habit number two, and you might have read that book. And he says, you need to know where you're going in order to better understand where you are now so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. It's easy to get caught up in an activity trap, in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success, only to discover it's been leaning against the wrong wall. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life in such a way that at the end of it all, trying hard to climb the ladder of success, I realized my ladder was leaning on the wrong wall. That's a seriously tragic picture of a life not well lived. So there's this deep desire in all of us to have a sense of where we're going, what it's all for. And no doubt, this is one of the reasons why throughout history, women and men have constantly sought the answer to perhaps the biggest and ultimate question, what happens when we die? After all, there is no more certain end point in this earthly life than death. It is there, like it or not, waiting for each one of us. Makes sense then that if in order to live a meaningful life, we need to keep the end in mind, that we would seek as humankind to understand what awaits us at this ultimate end of death itself. Now, sitting in a church, whether you're a believer or not, you might assume the answer to the question of what happens when we die is easy and that it would come easily to those in church. What do we say? When you die, you go to heaven, right? I mean, this is why the church exists, isn't it? To help people get to heaven. And it's a pretty simple equation. Heaven is good. God made heaven. Heaven is where God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit dwell in perfect unity, a place where death, evil, suffering, and pain is gone. And so we should want to be there. But you're bad because you sin. And so you can't get into heaven. Unless you believe in Jesus who died on the cross, then you can. So whereas you didn't have a ticket to get through the pearly gates into the great eternal concert of heart-playing angels in the sky, now if you believe in Jesus, you get one. Happy days. But if this is the entirety of your view of heaven, that Jesus came, died and rose again only to give you that ticket to the great concert in the sky and that the church is just a place for people going to the concert to wait around until we die, 
you might have a problem because your view of heaven is far too narrow. Now, this is not for a second me seeking to diminish or devalue the incredible act of God's saving grace through Jesus' atonement on the cross for our sins. I need that, you need that, and we all need that. It is the crucial transaction at the center of our personal salvation described in passages like Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. This process of what theologians call the theology of substitutionary atonement is critical. It is at the center of the act of the cross that brings us into right relationship with God. And we're going to talk a little bit about and see a little bit more about what that looks like soon. And so just so I'm being very clear this morning, the theology of substitutionary atonement is not the thing I'm coming to kind of take issue with. The issue is that when Christians and churches throughout history have taken only parts of the Bible or parts of a cultural or historical understanding of what heaven is, that it is simply somewhere we go after we die, that it has become too narrow. And that's a real problem because it has given countless Christians and churches throughout the centuries an utterly anemic vision for how they are to conduct themselves in their life here and now. Because here's what can happen if you have too narrower a view of what happens when you die and too narrower a view of heaven. On one hand, you have individuals and churches that have taken this narrow definition and chosen to separate and isolate. Stay good, wait it out until you reach the end. And this is an approach that instructs individuals and congregations to get away from all that is bad, to pull up the drawbridge, associate only with other Christians, except when you're trying to convert others into the club, listen only to Christian music, watch only Christian TV, and wait it out because heaven is coming. And we know where this leads because we've all experienced Christians, churches, and ministries that are like this. And if we're honest, at times we ourselves, and even as a church, may fall in or towards this trap. Because such an approach tends to produce a faith that is defensive. When characterized by fear, suspicion, and distrust towards the wider world, we tend to turn in. And in turn, that outside world can view the church as kooky, closed-minded, and perhaps worst of all, irrelevant. And maybe that's being a bit harsh. And today I don't want to kind of create straw man arguments out of this church or that church or that way of living your life or another way just to bring them down. But I'm kind of exploring what can happen when we go for too narrow a definition of heaven. And it might not be this bad. Perhaps those who lean towards a separate and isolate approach don't become defensive or offensive churches, but there is a real risk they just become nice and comfortable churches. And uh, Christians and churches who, like Bev shared about last week, are happier in their ivory tower looking down or out on the world, but disengaged from it, not stepping out in boldness or in faith to stand up for what is right, to make a difference. On the other hand of these narrow views is a perspective of life and of Christian religion that gives its followers complete license to do whatever they want here on earth. Because so long as they say the magic forgiveness formula at the end or each Sunday at church or in the confessional, then they can do whatever they like during the rest of the week on their time on earth. They can run dodgy businesses, exploit others, lie to get ahead, you get the picture. This is what I call the godfather view of Christianity, where mafia mobsters can kill a guy on the Saturday but then go to church and still be Christian. 
And it's an extreme articulation, but you get the point. Both are disintegrated and deficient views of how God calls us and wants us to live here on earth between the saving act of his son dying on the cross 2,000 years ago and the final restoration of heaven and earth that is still to come. Neither brings hope, neither leads us as individuals or as the church into being a force for good in this world, which is exactly what we're called to be doing. So what is a right view of heaven? Well, we're going to watch a video from the Bible Project to get a little bit of a picture of this. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah. So we have these two spaces now and the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So explain how that works. Yeah. This is where we have to start talking about temples because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we 
hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so, what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So, in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. It's quite an incredible short film, isn't it? Have you ever considered the Bible as a story of the union of heaven and earth and what that means for how we are to live our life in the here and now? I was actually going another direction with this sermon when I was assigned the task by my wife. I don't preach these days because I personally find it very hard to prepare it amidst working and being a dad and doing all those other things. But, you know, she asked me to for this series. So, of course, I said yes. And um, I was going another direction. But actually, as I was considering it um, earlier in the week, um, Zippy, our eldest daughter, who's a very deep thinker, but unfortunately, her deep thinking takes place at eight o'clock at night when my other kids who are early risers have had us up from 5am and eight o'clock is like time to like shut the kids down so we can have some time to ourselves. And she said to me, what's heaven like? What's heaven like? And I realized like so often we are into, we just kind of accidentally give quite pet answers to kids about this because it is complex to kind of try and explain this, but it is amazing. Anyway, it led to an interesting conversation in the car with the kids about what heaven is like. And some of the great theological insights or questions provided there were like this one from my son. I think heaven is where every time you take a shot in soccer, no matter how bad a shot it is, it goes in the goal. We also had, um, he was on a roll, he said, I think heaven is when you catch a wave and you never fall off, you just keep surfing forever. And then the grand finale said, I think heaven is when you do a fart and no one can smell it. (laughs) 
But if it pays to have the end in mind and we want to give our kids a bigger picture narrative of what the Bible is calling us into, we need to find ways of expressing and talking about the fact that actually heaven isn't up there, it is coming into earth and Jesus' death, burial and resurrection actually starts that inauguration process 2,000 years ago and that our job is not this, the jump across, but it's to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and to make this space wider and to be little Jesuses who go and take out God's love, his example, his witness, his healing into the wider world. That is actually the end goal and that calls us forward into what we are to be doing right now. It's amazing, but it's a big idea to take in. One of the authors who has spent a lot of his life's work unpacking what has been the church's narrow view and this kind of broader view on heaven and earth is the um, English theologian and he was a bishop as well, N.T. Wright. And he says a lot about uh, this topic in his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection and the Mission of Church. And I thoroughly recommend, if you're finding this kind of at all interesting, uh, engaging with his work. He's got sermons recorded online or you can read the book, uh, but I'm going to share a little bit from it. So N.T. Wright says this, this is a kind of application. If we are living in a heaven coming into earth reality, what is the application meant to be in our lives? Well, as genuine human beings from Genesis 1 onward, we are given the mandate of looking after creation, of bringing order to God's world, of establishing and maintaining communities. To suppose that we are saved, as it were, for our own private benefit, for the restoration of our own relationship with God, vital though that is, and for our eventual homecoming and peace in heaven, is like a boy being given a baseball bat, we can make it a cricket bat for Australia, as a present, and insisting that since it belongs to him, he must always and only play with it in private. But of course, you can only do what you're meant to do with a baseball bat when you're playing with other people. Salvation only does what it's meant to do when those who have been saved are being saved and will one day fully be saved realize that they are saved not as souls but as wholes and not for themselves alone but for what God now longs to do through them are you getting this picture it's about what we are to be doing now he continues in another part of his book the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. This is the new creation that starts when you turn to God, not just after you die. You are a new creation now in the present. So what you do, whether it's painting or preaching or singing or, you know, looking around, working as a child psychologist or raising your kids or working as an accountant or being a teacher down the road at St. Phillips or working for justice or supporting programs in MUCO or creating art or caring for the needy or the homeless or those who are aged, all of these things will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little bit more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. It is God who builds his kingdom, but he calls us now as an act of worship to start building with him for that eventual outcome. It's amazing. And I don't know about you, but this expansive view of heaven is so much more exciting and interesting and enticing than the more narrow presentations that lead to either the don't be bad and separate and isolate approach to the world we talked about earlier or the sin and do whatever you want because you can say the magic words at the end formulas of living your Christian life. 
Instead, this holistic view of heaven, it's inspiring, it's motivating, it's energizing, and most of all, it brings hope because it has something to say as to how we are to live our lives now. And as a young teenager, it is precisely what brought me to the Christian faith. I didn't grow up in a regular church attending family. My dad was the son of two Jewish refugees from Hungary who escaped from the Holocaust. Their entire families were killed. So when they settled in the eastern suburbs, they were very keen to kind of get rid of the Jewishness of their son. So they sent him to the Anglicans or the Presbyterian Scots College. And uh, that was going pretty well until he won the Christian Character Award. And then they thought, whoa, 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 we've, got to, we've overcorrected here and started sending him along to um, Sunday Hebrew school um, and to Jewish mixes, <laughs> which I'm sure were an absolute hoot. So, so that was dad's life and upbringing. Mum, on the other hand, grew up in the North Shore of Sydney, in a, you know, and in that day and age and time and culture, that basically um, conferred upon you nominal Christian status because that was just the kind of cultural air that was breathed there in, this, in the schools, in the communities. Most people would go to church or at least be attending church on the Christian holidays, and that was kind of my mum's story. So we didn't grow up anti-church. The, the, the family was open to it, and so, of course, they were open to me going along to things like youth group occasionally or the occasional church service or the baptism of a friend. And as I went along to these church services when I was younger, the first impressions I was given of Christianity tended to emphasize this more narrow view of faith as being about my personal sin, but my individual salvation through Jesus. Now, like I said at the start, and I labored, that is not wrong. It's just that for a young boy who's not from a Christian family, being told that you're a sinner and that these things are sin and that, you know, don't worry, you can get salvation through Jesus to go to heaven, it just didn't compute. It wasn't relevant. I didn't want to turn away from the sin that I was doing at the time, which I didn't think was that bad. And I didn't think that this place that they were talking about, heaven, was that interesting. So it's just kind of a formula that did not work for me. Yet all of that would change when I went to Southeast Asia as a younger man after the um, Boxing Day tsunami. And I experienced what uh, my boss at Micah, Tim Costello, calls the great lottery of life. Now, you don't need to go overseas to experience this because there are many people stuck in incredible hardship here in our own communities and in our own country. But I was overseas when I realised the great lottery of life, that just because I was born the son of a doctor and a nurse uh, on the north shore of Sydney, that my life circumstances and opportunities were radically different to those of other people purely because of where they'd been born or who they'd been born into, whether it's a circumstance of poverty or injustice or abuse. And that really kind of broke the bubble that I'd been living in. And I remember when I was flying home thinking about the intermittent experiences that I'd had at church and thinking to myself, If this God is real, if this faith has something to offer, it has to have answers to these questions now that I'm experiencing of injustice and the brokenness of the world. And what's the plan here? What's the purpose of it all? What's the end goal? Now, those answers didn't come all at once in an audible voice whilst I was sitting on the plane, but they actually happened through a series of interactions and conversations that took place when I got back to Sydney through those churches and through the attention of youth group leaders and other young adults who were watching the journey I was going on and saying, okay, this is what he needs to engage with now out of the Bible. And one of them gave me a copy of this book, Reflections from the Scorched Earth, a witness from some of the world's toughest war zones. And it was written by a Christian humanitarian uh, worker who had served in six war zones and a famine to help some of the world's most vulnerable people in the darkest imaginable situations. And I was gripped by his stories and his tales, but it was in his epilogue 
that my life was really changed. Because in the epilogue, he did a study on the passage of Scripture of Isaiah 58 and explained that this was the why of what he did. In this Scripture, if you're not familiar with it, we find the prophet Isaiah rebuking the Israelites who had focused their worship and their kind of religious practices on appearing to do the right things and had forsaken the true call of God uh, into the community that they were meant to be as a community of justice. And it says this, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? That's the thing that binds people and holds them together um, into hard work. It is not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And when I read that passage, the first time I'd come across it in more than 10 years of intermittent church attendance, I thought, now that's a God I want to follow. And it was like the entire Bible unlocked itself from there on out as I was drawn into this expansive vision of what God has for our lives beyond us simply going to heaven once we die. And I started seeing this call to integrate both saving faith and life-giving action throughout the Bible. And it was exhilarating. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is not saying that you are saved through your works, but you are saved to do good works, to do good works. And I'm passionate these days about helping people understand this bigger picture of what God is calling us to through his son Jesus. Yes, it's salvation, the forgiveness of sin and the restoration of life between us and God. And that's amazing. But to then answer the question that comes after this, which should be, okay, I've been saved, but saved for what? And I think there's never been a more important time for the church to find its voice in being able to articulate this because I can make a bet and the data kind of says that more and more young people in our culture and society today and even older people are more like me when I was young than like those who are being brought into church by a Christian family who want them to become Christians, right? We need to find our relevance and to tell this bigger story. Otherwise, it it will just struggle to communicate across to a culture that is less likely to come and engage in church simply because 
you know, they should. Now, it's God's Holy Spirit that convicts and he can move through a nation and do amazing things. But I think we have a role in this as well. But for now, I want to bring our conversation together today by bringing it back to a focus on both you and our church. Because I truly believe this invitation to be a builder of God's kingdom here on earth is one that deserves a considered response from each one of us as individuals and corporately as a church. We don't want to be working to climb that ladder of success only to realize we'd lent it on the wrong wall. So here's that invitation, firstly for you. As it says in Ephesians, you've been saved by grace. Why? To do the good works that he has set out in advance for you to do. God is wanting you to step into your calling for the sake of helping to bring heaven on earth here and now in your community, in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, in this church, into our world, for those you already know and love and for those that you may not have even met. He needs you. He can do it without you, but he wants you is probably the better way of saying it. He wants you to experience this and to partake with him. It's why he created you. That is your act of worship. Secondly, it's an invitation to our church. This series is about how we are to be bringers of hope. And Bev kicked us off. She said, we don't want to be in the ivory tower. We don't want to isolate. We want to step out and engage. And thankfully, here at The Granary, there are so many ways that you can step out and engage, that we are stepping out and engaging. Youth camps, kids' ministries, what's happening down at Granary Care. Actually, the mission of this church is that we would exist as a church to bring heaven on earth. That actually sits at the center of the Granary Church, which I think is incredible. And then, of course, there's our overseas partnerships. And that's a bit of a focus of these series. And in particular, our partnership with the Maternity Clinic in MUCO. And to explain the heart of our global partnerships and what it is that uh, Brittany and myself and a team of others that really care about and feel called to build this ministry in our church have been working on for the last decade or so, I want to explain to you something about uh, my experience of trying to understand the existence of extreme poverty in God's world and how we are to respond as someone who, as a humanitarian, has had the privilege of working in this space for the last 15 years. So for millions of people living in extreme poverty, this life can be far more like hell than heaven. To go back to those narrow descriptions of the gospel, you know, on one hand, you could say that it might provide a measure of comfort to be able to say to someone in such a situation, well, at least there's something better in store on the other side of this life than your current situation. No doubt that might be somewhat reassuring and even provide a little bit of hope. But think about this in practice. Imagine right now that a church or Christian organization rocks up in one of the famine-stricken communities in Somalia, which is experiencing famine right now. And they've got a truck. And all that's in the back of that truck is Bibles. Now, some might say, that's great. That's giving them the word of God, the bread of life. But wouldn't it be better to instead arrive in such a community? Yes, with God's word, but also with enough daily bread for that community to survive. Or even better, to arrive and to not only hand out food to survive, but to say to that community, we're here for you. We're going to walk by you, support you, pray for you, continue to demonstrate God's love and care. We're going to seek to understand your needs, yes, but also your strengths and to work with you in a way that is full of dignity and respect to help you overcome your challenges to reach your own self-sufficiency. And in the process of that, 
we know that we are going to learn to be blessed by you because we're going to learn about the resilience, the strength, the perseverance that you have through your experiences of life on this earth. And this really begins to illuminate the heart of what our partnership in MUCO and our other partnerships around the world are really all about. MUCO isn't famine-stricken, but it absolutely has its fair share of challenges as a remote rural community in Uganda's west. And when Betty Shepherd, Pastor Sue Owen's mum, arrived there for the first time more than 40 years ago, the need that was most pronounced in that area was that of basic health services, in particular for mothers needing a safe place to deliver their babies. And so whilst Betty preached in their churches and ministered in their small groups, just as in turn that community through its leaders, some of whom have been here and our teams who have gone over there, have been ministered to by those amazing followers of God, there was a practical step that needed to be taken. Betty wanted to do something that showed the practical love of this church for the community in Muko here and now on this side of heaven. And so the maternity clinic project was initiated. And as you've seen in the video, it is doing amazing things. So that's what this push for funds is about. It's not just another fundraiser set to an arbitrary target where you don't know where the money goes. This is about our mission on earth as this church, the Grainer, who has been entrusted a very special partnership and relationship with a community in Muko. We want to walk alongside them to bless them and support them and to also be blessed in return by that experience. So you have that opportunity to make life on this earth for those women in Muko a little bit more like heaven and a little bit less like hell when it comes to that critical moment of giving birth to their children. So I'm going to pray to close today and the band's going to come up. We're going to join in worship again. Father God, we thank you that you love us and that you call us to such an expansive story, Lord, that begins um, with your son and is connected to us through the salvation he offers through his death on a cross, but then calls us out to live out that love in action, to do the good things that you've set in advance for us to do. And God, I just pray uh, for those in this room today, Lord God, who don't yet have that relationship with you and who don't yet have a sense of that mission that they are called to by you. And I pray, Lord God, that they would experience your love, your forgiveness, that they would turn away from those things that are holding them back from you and from walking into this vision of life that you have given them and all of us to find healing, to find restoration, to find forgiveness and in response to be bringers of that same hope into the world around us. Father God, would you help restore those relationships today, Father God, with you, that we may bring your hope into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.